Good to see everybody tonight. You turn in your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Last week we learned that Nehemiah is the third of three leaders who are bringing exiles back to Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, and then Ezra, and now Nehemiah. The name Nehemiah actually means Yahweh has comforted. He also introduces his father. His father's name is Hakaliah, and that means wait for Yahweh. So Yahweh has comforted, wait for Yahweh, wait for the Lord. So before we even begin reading the book, just by the introduction of a few names, we begin to see that God intends to do and has been doing something to comfort and to fulfill his promises, to do what he said he would do, which is where comfort comes from. And so other than this brief introduction, we don't know a whole lot about Nehemiah nor his dad. So why does he introduce himself? Well, a lot of times in both the Old and New Testaments, when authors reveal details about themselves as well as kind of their location, where they're from, they do so as markers to validate their writings and their time in history so that people could fact check what was written, ask people who knew. So that's why right in the beginning, after he introduces himself, he gives a few more details. So verse 1, Now the words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. So we know from history that Chislev is kind of our season of November, December, our winter, their summer. It's the height of the Babylonian summer, which is where Nehemiah is writing from. He mentions this 20th year. He's talking about the 20th year of the rule of King Artaxerxes, and he's in Susa. So it gets so hot in Babylon that the king had a summer home, and that's where Nehemiah is writing from. So here we're going to jump in to the rest of the book. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our opening today. Just the words we've spoken together, your words we've spoken together with Jason leading, words we have sang together. We're thankful. And for your promise of comfort, and reminders to wait on you. You will fulfill your promises. So we do that and we trust. And we ask that you would help us to enjoy our study, to take it in, that your spirit would run your words deep into our hearts, that we would sense your presence, and that we would grow and become more like you. At this end, we thank you for your help and ask for more. Amen. So we have a little bit of information about the context of the book from history that's helpful for our study. So Nehemiah's great-grandparents would have heard would have heard the prophecies of Isaiah 
and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. This is not too long ago. Great-grandparents. His great-grandparents would have heard the words of these prophets, and not only would they have heard them, but they would have come true. They would have seen them. If you guys keep acting this way, the Babylonians are going to come in and take you away. And Nehemiah's great-grandparents saw those prophecies come true. Israel's sin progressed. Jerusalem's conquered. And her people are killed, enslaved, and scattered. Nehemiah's grandparents would have been small children during the exile, or they would have been born in captivity. So his grandparents would have watched a few hundred miles north as the Persian Empire grew, and then would later come down, and his grandparents would have been part of watching the nation of Persia take over, the kingdom of Persia take over the Babylonian kingdom. So they would have watched their captors be taken captive. Nehemiah's parents would have also been born in captivity. They would have never seen the city of God, Jerusalem. But they would have heard about it through stories from their parents, Nehemiah's grandparents and their grandparents, Nehemiah's great grandparents. It's likely, not knows for sure, but it's likely that Nehemiah's parents were among the 40,000 who left with Ezra 13 years before we start studying Nehemiah's book. And I believe that's true for one reason in particular, and that is we see in, in verse 2, Nehemiah's younger brother comes back and returns. So Nehemiah's younger brother goes to Jerusalem and now comes back and is having a conversation with his brother. This isn't like now, you know, this is a thousand mile journey. This isn't like some of you younger guys going off to college and then you fly home for break. You, you didn't do thousand miles back then. It was a four, it took Ezra and um, his second exile coming back to Jerusalem. It took him four months to make this journey. So in this time period that Nehemiah introduces us to in the beginning of the book, in this season, in this location, under this king, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, is seeking to bring comfort to those who are waiting on him. And so to do this, he initiates this process that we talked about last week, if you were here with us. There's an invitation to dwell with the Lord. He makes all the necessary provisions in order to do that. Even though men and women have failed him by fear or pride, there is a gracious response to their failure. A way to return is provided, repentance, and a gracious promise of God's presence is renewed. And right here at the beginning of the book, God begins to initiate that process once again. Proverbs 21.1 says, the, king, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He's done that in the heart of King Darius. He's done that in the king um, 
in King Cyrus, and now in Nehemiah, he will move in the heart of Artaxerxes. And that's we're going to start covering that in chapter 2. But before that even begins to happen, the Lord begins a work in Nehemiah's heart. The stories from Nehemiah's parents, his spiritual heritage, the promises of God that he reads begin coming alive or have been alive in Nehemiah's heart. God's word has been planted there. The reminder of his promises to his people, Nehemiah obviously firmly believes, and we know this to be true. And here's the thesis or the main statement of our time together tonight, and it's this. Nehemiah is fervently concerned with seeing the will of God accomplished. If you're going to hear one thing tonight, hear that. If you're going to ask yourself one takeaway question tonight, it's going to be this. Am I concerned, am I fervently concerned with the will of the Lord and seeing it accomplished? So we read verses 1. Nehemiah introduces us to the book. And now we see Nehemiah's brother returns with some other men from Judah, and he brings Nehemiah information regarding the conditions of Jerusalem. Remember, Ezra, when he got to Jerusalem, was extremely disappointed. Again, thousand miles, they didn't have news traveling back and forth. Ezra gets to the city, he expects to see all kinds of people loving the Lord, living out his word, obeying him, serving at the temple, doing what God has called them to do. And Ezra is extremely disappointed to find just the opposite. And now with this news that Nehemiah gets from his brother, he shares the same sort of heartbreak. Look at verse 2. Haniah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So if we were Nehemiah, some words would scream out to us. We're waiting, hoping for good news. Ezra has gone 13 years before. Perhaps his parents and family have gone with. He's waiting for news. At least he's waiting at least 13 years to hear news. And these words would scream out in his head. Great trouble, shame, walls broken down, destroyed. Verse 4 shows us Nehemiah's response. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah has two responses. As soon as he hears, and then he continues. He hears, he sits down. You guys have probably done this. You plop down in your chair, your hand goes to your head. 
And he mourns for days. But he also continues. We assume, because there's, we know from the beginning part of chapter 2, he says in the month of Nisan, we know that's a four-month period. When he says he continues, believe that's a four-month period of Nehemiah constantly fasting and praying about the condition of Jerusalem. What's this strong response about? I'm reading this book. Why is this guy going to pieces? What's this response from Nehemiah's heart that he starts weeping and then he dedicates himself to prayer for four months? Well, Nehemiah had known from his family as well as the Torah and the prophets that Jerusalem, containing God's people, is the vehicle for God's saving purposes for the world. God's people, to which he had revealed himself, who were called to serve as his representatives, to follow him as a community, to uphold Yahweh as king, a community where God uniquely dwells in a building, the temple, among his people, and his people follow them with their lives, their thinking, the way they love and treat one another, and in acting, responding to the Lord this way, they become holy. They're different. Nobody thinks like that anymore. Who has those values Why keep those holidays? This would cause the nations around them to see the glory, the attributes of the living God and then want that God as their own. Nehemiah knows that this is the intention of God's people. He would have remembered verses from the prophets like Jeremiah 23. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. Nehemiah remembers these words and he's expecting fruitfulness and multiplication. Or Ezekiel 37 21 through 25, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Or Isaiah chapter 11, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the island of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Nehemiah is waiting for this. Or Isaiah chapter 60, violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. 
But the walls are broken down and the gates are burned, Lord. Are your promises true? Nehemiah is distraught because he hears the condition of Jerusalem and it was not salvation and their gates were not praise. But Nehemiah is fervently concerned, concerned, even consumed with seeing the will of God accomplished. Again, the Jews were intended to live set-apart lives under God's rule in His city. They were to be living priests, a demonstration of God's glory and His goodness, a declaration that God has come to, to rescue the world. They are to be the vehicle through which salvation would move into the world. But at this point, the living condition is Jerusalem is communicating everything but that. We're fools We are failures. We can't even rehang the gates on their hinges. They're in great trouble, shame, broken down, and destroyed. They're not safe. They're not dwelling in security. They're not announcing the salvation and safety to their neighboring cities. And they're not glorifying the Lord. I, I'm so encouraged, excited about teaching this book because there's so many parables. I think parallels. I think we can even relate here, church. How many of us in the last three years since the pandemic have, have been so uptight and concerned about the, the, the condition of our country? True? And woe, everything that I've known for certain is being upended. We're, we're seeing devastating realities being done in our elementary schools and in the public square and in our politics. And it's disrupting us, true? Look at Nehemiah. Can, can, now can we begin to capture, this is not just some little historical figure living 2,000 years ago. He's a guy who's distraught about the destruction and the demise of his country. We can relate with that. And, and, and we've got it pretty cushy, true? Think of the condition of the people of God and the state of his nation at the time of Nehemiah. Draw some parallels to our own lives. Think of the reasons that Nehemiah had to go on an Old Testament internet rant about the condition of God's people and the state of the temple. I mean, we're reading a letter that's really positive, but this letter could have gone a completely different direction. He could have written a critique of Zerubbabel's return, a review of Ezra's reform policies. You get to chapter 10, and Ezra gets a little bit weird. A scandal piece on the 10-year temple rebuilding fate pause. What's up with that? Where'd the money go? The pacifism of the people who couldn't get a 52-day project done in 13 years. What's going on? Not to mention the years, the years of a national slide 
into sexual sin and immorality and idolatry. He could be the man who runs around attempting to put all kinds of fires out. Meanwhile, his own coattails are on fire. And so in his frenzy, he actually starts more fires than he puts out. That could be Nehemiah. Why isn't he like so many of us who went into full-blown panic about the condition of our country? Why isn't Nehemiah taking to pen with paper about all these conspiracy theories and this, that, and the other thing and all these and and pointing out every falsehood and who did and what and the other person and why isn't he doing that? Nehemiah could wallow in grief over the state of his nation and the impossibility of his situation. True? I mean, he's a thousand miles away. They have been steeped in sin for a long time. This is a really gigantic, dysfunctional family. I mean, he could continue to ruminate over generational sin and sin around him and the sin of others and patterns of sin and past sin and present sin and look at the sin to come. And he could be overwhelmed by momentous development of generational sin. It's just happened over and over. My my grandparents were listening to this stuff. My great-grandparents were listening to this stuff and we're still here. But that's not what Nehemiah is doing. Why? Because Nehemiah knows that God's promises are greater than the sin that surrounds him. That's why. Church, let that run deep into your hearts. Because we're not in a very dissimilar situation. But here's what's true. The promises of God run deeper and are more profound and are stronger and greater than the sin that surrounds us. Amen? Amen. We ought to live like it. So where does Nehemiah start? Well, notice that he first goes to grief. It's an appropriate amount of grief. This isn't just skipping over the problems. He's not just making light of difficulties. He sees them for what they are. But he also knows his grief has to have a bottom. His troubles must turn from darkness to light. I think I've shared with you before, I remember I was in a position of uh, leadership in a previous uh, experience. I feel like I was very wrongly treated. I had made... People had made enemies for me, and I felt justified in anger and frustration. And that carried on for months, bitterness and resentment, nursing my hurts. There was an appropriate period of grieving, but I ran far too long with it. And I can remember the stoplight I was at, I was taking a turn onto 252, I was going to head north. I was ruminating and rehearsing this great travesty, this difficulty that had been done to me. And I heard, if it wasn't audible, it was the closest I've ever gotten. And I heard the Lord say, Rob, that's enough. 
That's enough. Leave it. Turn. Go from darkness to light. Their sin is now becoming your sin. Turn. It's over. Straighten up. When I was a kid, my dad, New York City cop, his forearms were like that big around. He had this muscle on his thumb because back in the day you didn't have automatic triggers, so you had to pull him back. You always had to pull the hammer back. He'd go like this, and he had a thumb that stuck up like this. He never spanked me. He should have. Um, he never spanked me. But part of that was because all he needed to do was say, normally he called me pal or pally or you know some kind of nickname. He always had nicknames for me. But if he just said, Rob, and I heard that voice that day, Rob, it's enough. Nehemiah is not just glancing over things, but he knows when enough is enough. And he turns. And here's what he says. Here's how he starts his thinking. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. You catching the tone of this prayer? O Lord God of heaven, ruler over everything. He's setting himself straight. The great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I am now to pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Nehemiah starts with God in heaven, great and awesome, promise keeper, lovingly steadfast. We should notice that Nehemiah starts similarly, similarly, yep, that word, just like Jesus when he taught us to pray. Our Father, great one who rules over everything in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name be great. The 4th century theologian Augustine wrote a small essay on prayer in response to a question from an affluent friend. This was a rich merchant lady. And in his first principle on prayer, he says this. I just read the first two of these principles today. It's really good. He said, you must account yourself desolate in this world. Again, he's talking to somebody who's affluent. And he's, he's talking to her about the trappings of affluency. And how Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to pass into heaven. And she's saying, can I pass into heaven? How do I grow and pray? And he's saying, you've got to be careful about your affluency because it can trick you into thinking you don't need God. That's what he's saying. And so he's saying, you must account yourself desolate in this world, however great the prosperity of your lot may be. In other words, Augustine's first principle on prayer is this. Before you can know what to pray or how to pray for it, 
you must become a particular kind of person. Your who you are will shape your prayers. And if you think you're number one, or if you think you don't need much, it will shape the way you pray. So there's a direct application for us here, team. Our nation, under God, is in a really rough spot. Rougher than most of us have ever seen. It's true. And whether this is just a short downward jaunt in an otherwise upward positive progress, or we are on the deck of the great democratic experiment that is going down in complete flames, hear me. It doesn't change this one fact. We are called to be a certain kind of people who fervently look forward to the will of God being accomplished in our lives today. You with me? The entirety of the book of Nehemiah and all of his actions, what he does in leadership, how he helps reform people, what he does to the economy, is based upon this one reality, this foundational stone that you have to understand or you're going to misunderstand the rest of the book. A lot of times I've been doing a lot of study on Nehemiah. There's all kinds of books on leadership principles that grow out of the book of Nehemiah. There's good leadership principles in here. There's all kinds of things that have been written on prayer. There's really good things about prayer in the book of Nehemiah. There's things about social reform. A lot of people talk about Nehemiah because he gets into social reform at the end. There's a lot of things about social reform in the book of Nehemiah. But if you don't understand this one thing, you're going to miss the the complete reason for the book. Nehemiah is fervently concerned with seeing the will of God accomplished. He wants the will of the Lord to happen. That drives his leadership. It drives his prayer life. It drives the reform of the temple, the installation of worship, everything. I want to see your will done, Lord. And so the question for us as we start into this study, right? Not just so that we can know more, know more things, but that so that we can become more and more like the God who we serve. The question for us as we start is this. Are we the kind of people who are fervently concerned with seeing the will of the Lord accomplished? See, it's not enough even that we should change our prayer life, church. Men, it's not enough that we should learn how to pray or change our prayers. We must first change our hearts. Or our prayers will be misdirected. Let me show you something. Jacob, are you going to help me? A few years ago, a pastor uh, took note. He's part of a larger church. He took note of the way that his church was praying. 
over a numerous weeks and over multiple adult Sunday school classes. And this is what he found. 6% um, of the requests were unspoken. I think it was 6% were for military personnel. This was shortly, maybe a decade after 9-11. They still, we still were having all the stuff going on. Um, 4% was for nation and politics. Missions, it's 5% for ministry. The spiritual lost, praying for the lost, was 6%. And events and happenings, you know, car travel, going on vacation, my brother-in-law's this, we got that to do, we need this, we need help with that, 50%. Sickness and medical, 23%. And then he presented this to his church with a commentary. But what he realized was that that they were spending an inordinate amount of time, 73%, on what? I'm Lord, my will be done. Lord, can I have? Will you give me? In my experience, and I'd be kind of surprised if anybody's been to more than three churches, if you wouldn't agree, I've seen that in more than one place. Look, I'm not saying we can't pray for these things. But if that is the, is that the strategic reality, we're out of line. Yeah? Church, honestly, a few months ago, we met as a leadership team, and we actually felt our prayer times together trending this direction. That's why we shook things up a little bit. But we also realized Just changing the prayer structure doesn't change our hearts. So we're actually going to go back to our old way. We're going to do more of that tonight. But I want to challenge us. It's not enough to change our prayer structures. You with me? Our hearts need to change. I mean, think about this chart in light of our Lord's Prayer. Jacob, you can hit the next one, please. As Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, let your name be kept holy. Keep your name treated with reverence. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in my life, in our lives together as it is in heaven. Next next one, Jacob. D.A. Carson says it this way, It is possible to ask for good things for bad reasons. How tragic then if our prayer for good things leaves us still thinking of ourselves first, still thinking of God's will primarily in terms of its immediate effect on ourselves, still longing for blessing, not the glory of God, but rather simply so that we will be blessed.
Let's look again at the prayer of Nehemiah. It's the next one, Jacob. O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome, God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, for your servants. Nehemiah is concerned with the glory of the Lord through his nation and his will being done. Nehemiah is fervently, I would add joyfully, concerned with seeing the will of God accomplished. And again, as we start into this book, the question for us and the consideration for application is, are we fervently and joyfully concerned with seeing the will of God accomplished? This sets the tone for the rest of our study. Otherwise, we're just gaining new principles to make our lives better. Some of you may be saying, I'm not concerned about that at all. And I don't really care. Well, we'll pray for you. And you ought to be. And in time, you'll see, if you haven't already, that your way is really not working for you. And some of you are like, I'm not fervently concerned with the will of the Lord, but I I want to be. How do I do that? Or some of us are like, I am, I want to grow. How do we do that? So a few things for us to consider how we grow in, Lord, I want to see your will done. I want that top on my list. I want that to affect the way that I pray. Brothers, when we're doing our study and right running this into our homes, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, we want your will to be done. As we're striving for this, What are some ways that we can keep this top on our minds? That we can bring it to the forefront of the things that we value and treasure. Okay, first one. I'd encourage you, if you're saying, I want more of this, I would encourage you to participate in a short mental exercise. Okay? If you're not concerned with God's will, ask yourself, well then whose will am I fervently concerned about being accomplished? If it's not God's will, it is somebody else's. Whose is that? I'm going to give you a cliff note version hint. It's yours. Okay. And then you might ask yourself, how much power do I exhort to see my will accomplished? And then you might ask yourself, and how effective am I at managing the unlimited variables that surround my will? In other words, how good am I actually at getting my will accomplished? Some of you are high-functioning, and you're like, I'd actually do that pretty good. Well, here's a question for you. How are the people around you dealing uh, with you getting your will done all the time? 
What's the condition of you high-functioning people? What's the condition of the people around you? How are they enjoying your best life? And then ultimately, what is the result of your will? What is it gaining you? Or as the hack theologian Dr. Phil used to say, I'm kidding, okay, don't, I don't want an email about that, okay? How's that working for you? This pursuit of your will, the, the thing that you need to see get done, how's that working for you? So if you're struggling or you want to grow, I don't really, but I want to, I'd encourage you to take a little trip on this exercise. And then once you've done that, second step is this. Repent of breaking the first and second commandment. Because you have made yourself your own God and your own ruler of your own universe and you have erected yourself as an issue of worship and you have offended a holy God and you deserve wrath. Because he will have no competitors. Because he doesn't fight fleas. So once you've realized that you've brought yourself up, repent and turn. You have been competing with God for his role in the universe. And you're a really bad, I am a really bad second place. True? Grieve. That you as an immature, self-centered child would dare to tell your perfect father how to run his business and his family. Repent and turn. Third, now that you're humble enough to receive, fill your mind with true thoughts. Think the Bible. Absorb God's truth. Absorb the reality of the only one who is worthy to be called God. Observe the realities of the only one who could manage all the infinite details of the universe and still do everything with everybody's best interest in mind and exalt his name at the same time. Observe the wisdom of his book as he lays out for you how to grow and be more like him and how to be his sons and daughters. Fill your mind with true thoughts of the only one worthy enough, wise enough, loving enough, and able enough to see his will accomplished. And then take some time and meditate and think about how God's will accomplished is good for his glory. And it's good for the earth. And it's good for every nation, every country, every state, how his will is good for our community, how his will is best for your family, for our church, and then you, me, your own life. So participate in the short mental exercise. I encourage you to 
repent of breaking the first and second commandment. Let us be humble enough to receive that we would fill our minds with true thoughts about the one whose will we are growing to love. And then I would encourage you to take inventory, and I mean write them down about all the good ways that God's will has manifested itself in your life. And even when you fought it, how it's turned out to be good for you. Remember those? Remember those events? Recall those events? When he's reminded you about his kindness? And he loved you right through your tantrums? And he said, we're still going to do it my way? but you'll see it's going to be better when you grow up. And recall those times. Why, why am I encouraging you to do this? Because it will teach you to love his will in the future when you recall his will in the past. And then lastly, give thanks. Be a person filled with gratitude. Okay, that just stole. Okay, everybody look. Okay, because that's like really cute. Okay. Okay. Now back up here. Okay. You with me? Guys, as we jump into this book, this is a really good start for us. Are we, how are we growing to be deeply burdened like Nehemiah, fervently concerned, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, take us there. May this become a growing passion for us to see your will accomplished. Father, I've made some efforts and you know how convicting they were to me and lay them out to my brothers and sisters that we would consider these things and other things that you're laying on our hearts through your spirit even now. Some of us willfully resisting some of us reluctantly hopeful, some of us willing to pursue, others of us rejoicing. Lord, you know all of our hearts and you're calling to each one of us right now to love your will and to love your way. Understanding they they come from the God who loves us, who is steadfast in his love. And then ultimately on the other side of the Old Testament, we know so much so that you paid our sin debt so that you could call us to be with yourself, erasing all of our willful acts of disobedience against you and our accidental ones, taking them all away so that we could live in friendship with you through Christ, in whom we trust, in whom we gain access, by whom we call you Abba, Father, by whom we even make these requests of you, and who also taught us to pray. So we make these requests because he did for us first. In Jesus' name, amen.